18 to 23. If you use one of the Pew Bibles again, that's page 966. 966. So earlier in the chapter, we have seen the visit of the Magi and fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament that birth of the Lord Jesus Christ would take place at Bethlehem, according to Micah. And then, of course, we have had Herod's uh, uh, distaste at the news of this competitor, really. The Magi go, they worship and bow down with great joy before Christ the King. And they head back to their own country. And then we read this in verse 13. When they had gone, that is the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, you have told us in your word that spiritual things, like we read in these uh, verses, are spiritually discerned. We can only understand them by uh, the grace of your Holy Spirit, uh, who works to illumine our understanding and highlight its meaning. And for me, as I preach, and for these brothers and sisters, these friends, as they listen Would you give us strength? Would you give us that grace to see and understand and believe what you would have us believe today? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, I don't know what your New Year's Day was like. Uh, Mine was tired. I was tired. Uh, We had some visitors in Hogmaray and so on, and as soon as the bells got, you know, there was a temptation at five past twelve. Right, away you go. You know, time 
Time's up. We've had our fun. I'm too old for this now. It's bad, isn't it? New Year's Day, I sat and watched. This is how bad New Year's Day was for me. Uh, I was sitting watching Channel 5. Uh, it gets worse. A program called Royal Babies. I, I mean, what was I thinking? Uh, here was a program that gave you an insider's look at how kings and queens are raised. Uh, from the baby Queen Elizabeth to Wills and Harry and some of the other ones as well. And you get the idea from their upbringing that, I mean, needless to say, it was very posh. Uh, it, was, it was decadent. It was luxurious. And there were various attempts by, by some, like Princess Diana, for example, some members of the royal family making attempts to try and normalize this whole heir to the throne thing. Uh, for example, by registering their children uh, at a local primary school, just to give them a normal education. But when you have Prince William, four or five year old, calling the Queen Granny, and when you see that he gets for a present a ride-on toy, which is basically a scaled-down, motorised Aston Martin, get this, with smoke screens from the exhaust and pop-out rockets from the front, just like James Bond, you know you're dealing with royalty, right? When you get gifts that are as luxurious and as decadent as that, that's how royal babies are raised. Now, Matthew has taken great pains in chapters 1 and 2 to highlight for us through genealogy and through prophecy to say, this is a royal baby we're looking at here. Jesus Christ. In fact, he is God's son. He is more royal than any king or queen that this globe could ever produce. And it's hard to see anything but a king in this child. But how will this royal baby be raised? What will his early years be like? He's not born into a palace. We've seen that. He has received some pretty fantastic birthday gifts let's face it we would have been quite happy with some gold this christmas wouldn't we but matthew tells us that really within two years of his birth the lord jesus christ is a refugee and the gifts of the magi would have come in very handy when trying to keep their family as they were almost seeking asylum in egypt because as we've seen earlier in our studies some corrupt pretender to the throne not even an israelite he's an edomite uh, is passionate about retaining the power that he holds as king in Judea. And, well, when that threat passes, Jesus returns to Nazareth, a place really of ill repute. It's the, it's the New Testament equivalent of, I don't know, I'm really tempted to say Glasgow, but that's uh, not really very nice to say that, is it? It's more like a 21st century caravan park in Armadale. Anyone here from Armadale? No? Good, I can say that then, that's fine. Um, now, <laughs> I'm from West Lothian, okay? I can say these disparaging things about West Lothian. So at first glance, it seems like Matthew is intent on showing us that this, there are some problems related to this royal baby's early years. Uh, how on earth is this baby going to be the saviour of Israel if, he, if he's in exile, if he has to flee in the middle of the night to Egypt? And how is he going to, how, how is he going to be nurtured and produced to be this king that we're all expecting him to be if he's come from a place like Nazareth, a place where, I mean, the people are just so rude and, and crude and 
you know, to call someone a Nazarene was to, was to offer a disparaging remark. And at first glance, it does seem like Matthew is just intent on saying, okay, here's a little bit of an historical account. Here's what happened after the Magi left. He had to, fly, he had to flee to Egypt to escape Herod. And then he avoided Herod's atrocious order of the slaughtering of these children in Bethlehem. And then after that threat had passed, he returned then just to settle in Nazareth. I mean, is Matthew just providing some filler here for us? Or is there a deeper significance? I think you're expecting this, aren't you? There is a deeper significance. You have three historical scenes, but you have three places mentioned within each of these three sections. So you have Egypt, you have Ramah, which is near Bethlehem, and you have Nazareth. And each place has a corresponding prophecy from the Old Testament. And a prophecy being a, a prediction or a promise that would be later fulfilled. So he's telling you something when he says, when he keeps on saying, do you see how this fulfills what was written in the Old Testament? So each of these three scenes, verses 13 to 15, 16 to 18, and 19 to 23, all end with, and so was fulfilled, and so was fulfilled, what the prophets had said, and so on, three times. Which then gives us understanding into what the point of the text is. It's as if Matthew's saying, do you see that if you follow the footprints of these Old Testament texts, what they're going to do is, they're going to lead you directly to the feet of this baby boy, this royal baby, King Jesus. And so we should take note. And I think he frames this section in such a way as to point to Jesus as being the fulfillment of some of these Old Testament promises. Now, it's really not as straightforward as that. This is a strange thing. Uh, Old Testament promises work in slightly different ways. Often what happens is a New Testament author, like Matthew, will cite a prophecy and point us to a direct fulfillment of that prophecy. For example, you've already seen it in verse 6 up the page where Herod asks chief priests and teachers where the Christ was to be born they immediately went to the prophet Micah and gave their verbal answer because it had already said with, through a verbal prediction in Micah chapter 5, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So the shepherd king that God had promised from Micah chapter 5, that's a direct prophecy, okay? Verbal prediction right there. But sometimes there are prophecies that are, that are almost non-specific. Prophecies instead that give you, that instead of giving you a particular statement that is obviously cited in the New Testament, they give you almost a pattern of the way that God has worked through a person, through a group of people, sometimes just in a situation. There are things like, it, it's like prophecies that show us the shape of what God plans to do that might not be immediately obvious to the people at that time in history but later through explanation and further revelation from the New Testament writers shed light on what was happening now the key to understanding these things is to know that God works in the history of his people to give them hints 
and clues as to what he would finally do in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we get to talking about types. A prophecy, as I've said, is that verbal prediction of the future. A type, if you like, is a non-verbal prediction. So there are texts in the Old Testament that tell us quite clearly, God is going to send a saviour who will die. And there are other texts that don't say that. They just tell us about the sacrifice of a lamb. And don't give any other explanation to it. But we read later in the New Testament that every little lamb that ever died was a picture of who? Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. So we're given that non-verbal picture. That lamb is a type for the Lord Jesus Christ who will come. And what we have here really in Matthew, given my prolonged introduction to this, are really three types. And no less potent, no less powerful, no less significant than a direct prophecy. So back to these three scenes in Matthew. Matthew is intending for us to see some deeply significant things about this royal baby, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us these three images that point to a verse which in turn, actually it's almost, these verses are almost like keyholes. You know what happens when you look through a keyhole, and not that we do this very often, uh, but I'm, it's an illustration, bear with me. As you look through a keyhole, you get to see what it, a, a partially what is in the room, don't you? Now what, these texts are almost like you looking through the keyhole. You see that little bit of text. But what you're supposed to do is when you look through that keyhole into that room, you're supposed to understand that there is a greater context. There is a wider, there is a room there, parts of which you cannot see. And what Matthew's trying to show us here is that as we peer through the keyhole to see these texts, there is a bigger story, there's a context behind these. And the difficulty that we have today is that Matthew, in writing to a Jewish audience, largely, we believe, is writing to a bunch of people who would mostly know these stories. Uh, today, we cannot be that presumptuous. That everybody knows the stories about Exodus, or about the exile. Some of you are thinking, I don't know. Well, that's what makes my job quite hard this morning. But what I want us to see, I'm going to try and make this as simple as I can, okay? Three things that Matthew wants us to see from these verses. Three things we're going to explain. Number one, in Christ we see the beginning of a new exodus. Don't worry if you don't understand what that means just yet. We'll get to it. Secondly, in Christ we see the end of a mournful exile. And thirdly, in Christ we see the fate of the suffering servant. So number one, verses 13 to 15, the new exodus begins. So we have an historical account here. That Matthew provides us. Uh, poor Joseph doesn't get, really get many good nights sleep in the start of Matthew, does he? He's getting 3 a.m. phone calls from angels at the morning, in the morning. And just as we would get a 3 a.m. phone call and think, wow, this, isn't, this can't be good news. So, so uh, Joseph is getting this as well. Uh, verses 13 to 15 tell us that the angel tells him with some urgency, get up, take the child. So the child's the focus and his mother flee to Egypt. King Herod is scheming to kill your baby. And verse 14 tells us that he obeyed the command that was given. They became refugees in Egypt, which actually at that time was a perfect place because it had a sizable colony of Jews who lived there. 
Um, but this verse, the, this account here, uh, as, as, as you look at verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Do you want to turn there with me? It will really help you to turn back to Hosea. Does anyone know what it is? Nine oh seven. If you're using the pew Bibles, now this is really interesting because uh, Hosea eleven one says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." So this is a God speaking here, and this is really interesting because for a prophecy, this passage isn't promising anything for the future. It's actually speaking of what God has done in the past. So see what I mean about you look through the keyhole, but it's, it's, it's assuming that you know a bigger picture. And what it points to is Egypt. And what Egypt symbolizes for everybody who's read the Old Testament, and for Jews in particular, is Exodus. And when you look at Hosea 11, who is God's son in this reference? It's not Jesus, it's Israel. Which is exactly what God calls them in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. He calls them my firstborn son. Now what Hosea 11 does for us is open up for us a beautiful picture of God's fatherly affection for the nation of Israel. He take, Matthew takes us to Hosea, which in turn pretty much gives us an historical account of the Exodus in condensed form. Uh, it tells us in chapter 3 of Hosea 11 that God is the one who taught his firstborn child Israel how to walk. He is the one who led them with cords of human kindness, verse 4, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. That is a seriously good picture of Exodus, where the Jewish people, Israel, were in slavery under the oppression of the Pharaoh at that time. A Pharaoh who was killing their babies, a pharaoh who was uh, encouraging his, the taskmasters of, of Egypt to make the Israelites' job difficult, God heard the cries of their oppression and sent Moses as their deliverer to demand of Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may come and worship me. A greater picture of the Exodus for us is found in Exodus 19. I think it's the key to unlocking the whole book of Exodus. You yourselves what I did, see, have seen what I did. This is the Lord talking. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So in other words, in short, the history of the Exodus is they were enslaved to their oppressors. God set them free, brought them into a new life where they would be able to live for God in obedience to his command and be the people who would display his glory to the nations. Okay? But here's the problem. Verse 5 of Hosea tells us that these are an unruly and disobedient people. That Israel, his firstborn son, is rebellious. They put themselves back in the chains of their slave masters and they're carried out of the land that God gave them all because they were unfaithful and because they would not repent, be sorry for their sins. Now, how many of us know the heartache 
of children who, despite the love we pour on them, and despite the best interests that we have for them, uh, keep going off the rails. That's what Israel's uh, picture like for us here. God's son Israel, called out of Egypt to be a people who would be holy, set apart to display God's glory, was just unruly, going off the rails, but God would not let them go. Verses 8 to 9 of Hosea contain some of the most amazing statements about the character of God in this and the extent of his forgiveness. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Basically another word for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? In his love, God will not let them go. In comes Matthew. <coughs> Clearing his throat. Join the dots. You're like, what? I don't even know where I've come from. How can I join the dots? But it seems that Matthew is here wanting us to see Jesus in comparison with Israel. That Jesus, God's true son, the one that God had promised to send, who would call his people back to the God of promise and blessing. And as he gives this historical account it's, uh, of Jesus going into Egypt, it's symbolic of the fact that out of Egypt he's going to call his son, the one who will, unlike Israel, will be utterly faithful. That unlike Israel, one who, Jesus would be one who would succeed completely in obeying the commands of the Lord in such a way that would qualify him to be the one who would be the Savior. The one through whom God would show, show forth again his amazing love by saying, I will not let you go. How can I give you up my children? The one who is a rescuer. So this king, like Matthew's saying, though a refugee in Egypt, in verses 13 to 15, is led there and back again by God in order to highlight for us with bright yellow stabilo boss markers, this is my son, this is my true son, this is the faithful son, the hope of all who have turned away from me and put themselves back in that yoke of slavery. So you're like, well, I'm not a slave in Egypt. I'm not even a slave in my own country. Well, the Bible tells us quite clearly that we are slaves to a greater oppressor. That we are slaves to our own sinful desires. We are slaves to sin. Slaves because we can't stop doing it. And we need Jesus Christ, the one who will come and lift the yoke from our neck and truly set us free. And that happens because he died on the cross for our sins. And for all who put their faith and trust in him, there is a new exodus. You cross over from the death of Egypt to the new life heading for a promised land that is to come. The baby born at Bethlehem is the one who brings about, according to Matthew, a new exodus. A new deliverance. New life for his people who will display God's glory again to the nations. That's not all that Matthew wants us to see. This royal baby will not only bring about a new exodus, secondly, he will bring an end to mournful exile. An end to mournful exile. The historical account before us is in verses 16 to 18. Herod figures out he's been outwitted. He is furious. In his pride, he thought he had outsmarted everyone. But God intervened. 
And, and even in his pride, he somehow became angry and his anger just grew into sedition. This is a man. This is a man who's ordering something utterly despicable. But sadly, we see that this is not out of character for Herod. This is a man who is told in Josephus. Actually, we have more historical account, by the way, did you know, in history, of Herod the Great than we do even of Jesus. Than we do even of Alexander the Great and others, because we have two volumes from Josephus. Josephus tells us that Herod is a man who ordered the killing of his favorite wife. There's two things wrong with that. One, having a favorite wife. Uh, Two, there's three things wrong with that, I've just discovered. (laughs) Good, I'm glad you're laughing. That helps. Uh, Two, he's got more than one wife. Three, he wanted one of them killed. Um, He orders a killing. It's not hard to feel the pain of this, is it? And not when the memory of the Newtown tragedy is, is still so raw for us. Not when a nation like ours has seen events like Dunblane in the not-so-distant past. It's just evil. What's this all about? The weeping that takes place in Bethlehem is used by Matthew, really, to draw attention to Rachel weeping in Ramah. What's that all about? What's Ramah all about? What's Rachel got to do with it? Well, that's where we read from uh, Jeremiah 31 earlier. Why don't you turn there with me? Page 791 again. Two massively, massively important events in the whole history of Israel. One, the exodus. Two, the exile. And Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote at the time of the exile of Judah to Babylon. Uh, The Assyrians came in the 8th century BC to destroy the rest of the nation. That's 200 years later. But here you have a picture of Rachel who was Jacob, Israel's wife. And the so-called, she was well known in Israel as the mother of Israel. Now, she's been dead for a thousand years at this point. But Jeremiah is using her to say the same thing that we would say when we'd say uh, someone is so perturbed that they would turn in their grave, okay? Uh, She weeps from hers. She'd lost the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, about to lose the southern kingdom to the Babylonians, so she cries for her loss, the hope and the promise of a nation of promise and blessing the hope and the promise of an inheritance is pretty much gone so she cries for her loss and Ramah is where her eyes focus it's the place near Bethlehem very near Bethlehem where the, cap- where the foreign armies basically in the exile rounded up their captives it was right on the junction really of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom in Israel at that time and these armies selected the strong who would make good slaves slaughtered the rest, even the children. And then you have Jeremiah 32, 15, where you have this profound agony mentioned at the death of children. And rightly so, Rachel weeps. And as I said, with the killing of the little ones in Bethlehem, once more Rachel's weeping is heard. But what, what is Matthew showing us in this? What does this prophecy have to do with Jesus, what does that have to do for us to teach us? Well, interestingly, as I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. This is smack dab in the middle of an incredibly prominent passage for Israel. Jeremiah, as I said, is a prophet of doom. The book is very dark. 
except for one section, ex, uh, Jeremiah 30 to 33, a section just filled with light, with joy and happiness. And amazingly, what God is saying here is that despite the despair that this exile, this trouncing of your nation, despite the experience of that, there is hope for your future. It might look like the end, but it's not the end. The inheritance will come. So the tears, look at Jeremiah 31 uh, and verse 15. That's where we read a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. But this is what the Lord says. So again, Matthew's getting us to look through the keyhole. We see Jeremiah 31, 15 and Rachel weeping in Ramah. But he, he is assuming that everybody who's reading this is going to have the bigger picture in mind. And what does God say next? This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded declares the Lord the promise of God is that out of the suffering of God's people back then in the exile and despite the suffering of God's people back in Bethlehem as the boys two years old and under are massacred God says that out of Bethlehem will come the king, the saviour who will destroy death itself. So God says, restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. There's a hope for the, your future. And how important it is that he goes on to say, there's a time coming when I will make a new covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and remember sins no more. Some might say, yes, but I have still lost my son. I think one of the most deeply moving things I've read in recent times has been a story of the innkeeper, a fictional story about Jesus returning to Bethlehem to visit the place where he was born and to visit the innkeeper who is depicted as a, a righteous man broken by the loss of his infant son in the massacre itself and his wife who died trying to save that son all the way through the story Jesus asked questions inviting the man to describe his loss what was it like on that night And Jesus, until finally the innkeeper stops, and then you're just left with the silence towards the end of it. And you see Jesus weeping, and the innkeeper wonders at the stranger's tears. And then we read in this fictional account, of course, Jesus saying, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live. And took your wife, Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared that night. You made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob. I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of of him who has the power of death 
and I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too, his boys, and give them back, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. The mournful exile of a people ends with a newborn king ushering in a new covenant a new covenant that is signed and sealed by his blood a new covenant that will mean that death is not the end that there is a new heaven and a new earth and there is a place described with words like renew and restore and joy a place depicted as with, with Christ the King in the forefront wiping away the tears there is comfort there is comfort though there is pain there's comfort the new exodus begins in this baby the mournful, mournful exile ends because of this baby all because the suffering servant dies third point quickly verses 19 to 23 of Matthew give an account of the return to Nazareth Archelaus he's as big a scoundrel as his father Herod uh, the Holy Family used to live in Nazareth. It's a natural place to return to. They went back there. And you read in verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, I will give £10 to anyone who can tell me where this prophecy is found in the, New Test in the Old Testament. My money's safe. Because it's not a direct quote at all. So we're like, well, what is Matthew up to? Uh, well, I think he is using the word prophets in plural. He is offering, in his divine by being divinely inspired, a summary of some of the teachings of various prophets, and it's true. Matthew is saying that to come from Nazareth was to come from nowhere, the place that was so despised that a Nazarene had just become a synonym for someone who was despised. If you wanted to slag someone off, you would call them a Nazarene as a term of derision. And in fact, when the early church started, they used to say that the, the Christ, say to the Christians as a kind of knock, as a joke for them, uh, like in Acts 24, where they said of Paul in verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. They're seeing that in derision. And I think that's part of the reason why we have this prophecy here. The Old Testament said this again and again about Jesus, that he would come from that land of Zebulun and Naphtali, as uh, the Isaiah 9 passage tells us. The place where the people who are living in darkness would see a great light coming. Again, the king, this baby king, the royal baby is the light. But as Isaiah would go on to say, he is the suffering servant, the one who is despised, who grew up of no account, Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, it's 
before Jeremiah, who has believed our message, and to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? 740, if you're looking for it in the Pew Bibles. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Matthew points us to Christ, the one, the king who would be despised. The one who would be our substitute. The one who overlooked because he just looked normal. By human standards, he, being from Nazareth, uh, is unimpressive. Not humanly speaking, attractive, as Isaiah 53 tells us, but this servant is still the saviour. The one who saves us from the power and the penalty of sin, all because he is the one who will lay down his life for us in our place as our substitute, surely. In other words, no doubt about it. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed all. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is Matthew trying to show us as he calls Jesus a Nazarene? I think he's drawing our attention to Nazareth, to the place that is so lowly and despised, and yet to show us that out of Nazareth, even as we see in John's Gospel, I think it was Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was so despised, even a righteous man like Nathaniel could say, really, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes. How about salvation for the whole world? Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the baby who was born at Bethlehem, who fled to Egypt, who returned to Nazareth to bring about a new exodus, to bring about an end to a mournful exile. How? By dying on the cross for our sins that we might have forgiveness and freedom, that we might have new life, new birth, and that we might have a future resurrection from the dead ourselves. Matthew wants you today to have a confidence in the continuity between what was written in the Old Testament and the promises that God made both directly and indirectly through patterns and shapes. A confidence that Christ is the King. We can have a confidence, by the way, in the continuity between the Old and New Testaments in this. But we are primarily encouraged to see Christ is the King who brings about that new deliverance. Christ is the King who brings an end to our mournful exile. He brings about joy for us through a new covenant in his blood. And he is the one who is the despised servant who will die for our sins. The genealogy says in Matthew, he's a king. The fact that he is God with us tells us quite clearly he is the king. 
the fact that he fulfills prophecy that is spoken clearly and prophecy that illumines some personal event to be a type of Christ, pointed to Christ, tells us he's the king. The question is, are you living like it? Brothers and sisters, as Christians, are you walking in daily obedience to him by his grace and by his strength, by the Holy Spirit? Is obedience to Christ just an optional thing for you? Are we growing in holiness and in the likeness of Christ by his help, by his grace? Are we daily submitting our lives to obey him, to be humble people, to be loving people, to tell other people about Jesus? Are we forgiving other people, being kind to others? Are we increasingly patient? Are we restraining ourselves from being hateful towards people or hurting people or coveting what other people have got? And dear friend, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Have you submitted your life to him? This is what he calls us all to do. To recognize that he came because of our sin. But he came and dealt with that by dying on the cross for our sins. So that if you say sorry for your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is and did what he said he would do, the son of God who loved us, and died for us then you'll be saved you will have that joyful hope that is to come even if today your life is marked with suffering and your face is wet with tears would you come to him and put your faith in him let's bow our heads together and let's pray